You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, hello again, everyone, to another episode of the Fathoms podcast. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, something that gets mentioned a lot in the Enneagram community, but uh, I would argue, and we'll see if Creek and Abram agree, it often gets misunderstood uh, or misused, and that is the topic of ego and essence. So first question, Creek and Abram, would you agree with my statement that ego and essence is often thrown around in the Enneagram world, but is often maybe misused or confusing, or, or is it just me? Uh, no, I'm I'm totally with you, Drew. I think I think it's just assumed that everybody knows what those uh, esoteric words mean, <laughs> or just you know, yeah, right. yeah, it's just an assumed thing. I think a lot. Yeah, I think I I, un- I understand the essence of what they're trying to get at. Um, <laughs> there we go. People, <laughs> when people use those terms, but I think it's much more complicated than uh, than we even realize. So what we're going to do is talk about both ego and essence and the roles that they play in the Enneagram conversation in hopes of uh, maybe bringing about some clarity and pointing you all to some resources that have been really helpful to us. Uh, Because I do think that is a problem in the... A lot of people uh, within the Enneagram world talk about ego as if it's something maybe that we need to get rid of and essence as if it's something that we need to achieve. And I'm wondering if there's some problems with that perspective. So uh, I think we need to dig into each of those terms a little bit more deeply and uh, try to find our way through them so that we can understand them better. So maybe before we get into uh, ego and essence individually, maybe it's helpful to talk about how uh, these terms, uh, the roles that they play within the Enneagram historically. So I'm wondering, Abram, if you have any thoughts about that. Uh, yeah, thanks, Drew. You know, I think implicit in the symbol with the circle and uh, the triangle and the hexad, you see that there. But to bring in some history here, the Enneagrams most people are familiar with are the ones that uh, came from Oscar Echazo. You know, he was the Bolivian psychotherapist and then expounded upon by Claudio Naranjo, the Ch- Chilean psychiatrist. I always get those mixed up. Um, but Echazo was the, was the one that ordered the types and built the initial profiles and defined the relationship between being and personality. And then it was Naranjo that gave the types more of their detailed psychological profiles. So the Enneagrams that they presented fall into two basic categories. The first of which relates to the egoic experience, that of personality, and the second to the essential experience, that which is beyond the conditioned self, or what we could call the spiritual. And we'll get into naming both of those realms, but but yeah, those those two enneagrams were thought to be inextricably linked. Yeah, it's fascinating and probably helpful context for how we go about having this conversation. So it doesn't seem like ego in essence is this uh, extra add-on that we you know, are trying to somehow work into personality type, but are actually uh, really part of the whole experience and the framework itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's implicit in how you use the, the, the tool, yeah, how, how, to see how those are on a spectrum, where you are on yeah. that spectrum with them, yeah. And to, and to also know that you can be experiencing ego and essence in the same moment and that those aren't mutually... Um, exclusive parts of yourself. 
um, they often work in tandem. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Creek, because often <clears throat> I've heard the Enneagram taught as if uh, when you're maybe unaware or in your default setting, it's pure ego. And then when you suddenly become aware or conscious or you do the work, you know, whatever that may be, then you're living in essence. And that seems uh, pretty dualistic. Yeah. Uh, it seems mm -hmm. really simple, kind of black or white thinking. And um, I think our psyches are far more complex than that because our we as people are far more complex than that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's not it's not that we are only awake or only asleep, right? There's more of an intermingling with those two. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, before we really dig in, it's probably worth noting that, you know, we can only cover the depths of each of these topics to a certain degree in one podcast episode. So, this is probably a topic we'll return to, but we we will uh, explore these ideas, I think, in a helpful way, but we won't cover everything. Yeah, and I really think um, to keep in mind that really there's the knowledge of ego and essence. Yeah, that's important, and knowing knowing how to define these, how to understand them, um, that's all part of it. But really, it's about it's your lived experience. It's your it's your own personal um, journey. So maybe even in this episode, we may say some things that you feel resistance to, or you want to argue against, or you want to um, rejoice in, like all of those things. Pay attention to that and see where's the ego and where's the essence. I think that'll be a really good practice um, for just recognizing those two as you listen. Yeah, yeah, hopefully we can even be able to give some clarity on when, when you are more so in one or the other as well. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's talk about the ego first. Uh, I think it's probably worth starting with the origin of the idea of the ego because it didn't originate necessarily with, you know, modern Enneagram teachers that, you know, it comes from another place. So I'm wondering, Abram, if you have any thoughts as to where this idea came from. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I looked up the etymology of the word and it's from the Latin meaning I, you know, the, the self that which feels, acts, and thinks. But there's also then, the, you know, the Freudian concept is really where, where these terms came from. It's one of three different theoretical constructs that describes the interaction of our mental life. You know, you've yeah. got the ego, which was thought to be the, the mediator um, between the id, if you will, and the super ego. Um, I know that's a lot of psychological terms and confusion in there, but um, it, it's a Freudian concept. It means I. It means I am. It's how I have a lot of thoughts on this, really, and I don't know where to go exactly with this. But um, <clears throat> yeah, the ego. The ego is the imaginary doer behind thought and action, um, yeah. I, and I think it's it's believed to be necessary and essential for survival. Mm -hmm. So. Again, yeah, I, I, don't, I can go. I could just go off here, but I. <laughs> <laughs> but I think so. That's a really important point that I, I think is is really critical to clarify when we talk about the ego, especially mm -hmm. as it relates to the enneagram. Is that I think a lot of enneagram uh, students will come away from enneagram material thinking that the ego is something to eradicate or get rid of, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when we when we have that view, we're actually confusing the difference between uh, having an ego, which I would argue, as I think you both would, that it is part of a normal human experience, mm -hmm. and confusing that 
with being egotistical or egocentric. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where that difference is where the Enneagram can be really helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. the goal is not to get rid of our ego. I don't think we can, and I don't think we should, because I do think it is helpful for us. For uh, It's responsible for some really important functions of who we are, right? I mean, your ego like tells you to get dressed in the morning. Like that is, <laughs> that's totally, that's please, please dress yourself. Like don't <laughs> eradicate that part of your ego. Um, I, so I think it's, it is normal, but, and it's also crucial in so many different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it tells us it, 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 le- it leads to like what, how to know what to avoid. I think it, it's, it, uh, helps us satisfy just our desires. It's, it's what's, it's what's labeling everything, really. You know, it's what labels. It puts order in our world and gives us a sense of safety and security. Um, and it's how we know, like, who we are in, rela- in relation to something else. You know, we could yeah. we could talk about like the whole object relations theory. I think too, the part of the childhood development process where we're learning that we are an individuated self, because in our mother's wombs, you know, we uh, there's this sort of symbiotic experience where we are basically, literally one with our moms um and then it's it's not until we start to physically crawl away from our primary caregivers that we really start to recognize that we are a separate other which is where this um sort of balance hopefully with autonomy and connection um comes into play you know and that that really speaks then to a healthy ego or not whether we have too much autonomy or too much connection or not enough of either one of those as well. The development of a healthy ego, having somewhat of a decent balance of autonomy and connection is really how we start off well or not, how we have a decent sense of self to know ourselves in relation to other things. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it does. Yeah. And this is why I think we, we've probably heard before, uh, you know, when someone talks about another person that might be maybe a little arrogant or too self-proud, uh, they talk about them having an overinflated ego, right? Yeah. yeah. So if we think about the, the fact that our, our, our sense of self and our understanding of who we are, if it's this, maybe this kind of bouquet of balloons of some sort that the ego gets overinflated and maybe takes up too much space or too much air, and uh, so the idea is not necessarily to pop the ego and destroy it, right? But there's probably a proper role that the ego should play. Yeah. I think along those same lines of the analogy of the balloon, uh, I've, I've recently said it's, I mean, your ego, your specific way that you choose to survive in the world, like the, the nine types and, and then you got your instincts under that and all that stuff, like for me personally the it's a muscle it's a really strong i have a very strong emotional muscle to be able to blow up a particular emotion i can examine it at such a greater detail when you blow up a balloon the writing on the balloon gets larger and larger and larger it is my muscle that i've that i've developed um to to really be able to um as long as, again, as long as I don't identify with the emotions that I'm blowing up, it's a very, very helpful tool. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's actually where we are able to gain any level of self-reflective consciousness, mm, you know, because yeah. that's, that's where our ability to recognize we are something separate than something else comes from. So any ability to actually observe our patterns, to become more than 
our ego is found in the, the development of one. So I actually really find it helpful to make the distinction. I don't know what you guys will think of this, but between um, ego and personality. Because yeah. from, from my perspective, I think ego is more of the identification with personality as my identity. Yes. So personality mm-hmm. is something you have, whereas ego is something you think you are. Yeah. So ego, yeah. ego is what helps us distinguish one thing from another, is, exa- is exactly where our self-reflective consciousness comes from. So without he- a healthy ego development, our ability to observe our patterns in order to become more than them wouldn't be possible, like I already said. But yeah, the, that, the distinction between ego and personality. One is about um, confusing this small sector of human capacity for who I am, whereas it's just having a personality versus my personality having me, and that's the ego. Right. Mm. So I think that's really important. So tell me if you agree with this, that um, the problem or it does, the ego doesn't become a problem by virtue of the fact that we have one or that it exists, but maybe it becomes problematic when we over identify mm-hmm. with our personality at the expense of other parts of who we truly are. So then the problem would be not necessarily having an ego, but over-identifying with it and, or yeah. letting it run the show, right? That's yeah. where we get into being what egocentric or egotistical, right? Yes, yes. Um, yep, yep. And so I actually I came across a quote by uh, David Benner, who's a psychologist who's written some really helpful books on um, understanding who we truly are. And we can put some links in the show notes, but he really describes this problem this way, which I think is helpful. He writes, it, meaning the ego, cannot fulfill the role it is uniquely equipped to fill while it functions as the chief executive officer. Yeah. So in other words, our ego doesn't need to be eradicated, just needs to be put in its proper place. Totally. In order for us to live out of a more authentic sense of self, right? Totally. I, th- I think of it as a, comp- a compensatory solution, really. Sure. Of because we come into the world as babies, completely vulnerable, right? And that's why the ego starts to break down the older we get when we realize we're more than just those patterns, right? Right. Yeah. So would it be good to say then that the ego needs to be integrated in a healthy way into our sense of self? Yeah. Similar to, let's say, an Instagram account called the Integrated Enneagram. You might say that. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is a handle run by our own Seth Abram. Drew, I love that you're naming though. I love that you're naming that we're not, um, it's, this isn't about getting rid or eradicating the ego because I think that's where a lot of um, spirituality in the past has talked about. And, and now, especially with neuroscience, we're, we're naming that that's not even, <laughs> it's just not helpful because trying to kill your ego is the best way to sustain it. Um, right. Yeah, like I love what Richard Rohr says. He's, he says that we're not in the business of killing off our demons, but exposing, shining a light on them and spo- exposing them for what they are. Like looking yeah. them in the eyes and say, hey, I, I don't need you to, like you said, Drew, with that other quote, I don't need you to run the whole show. I'm going to just use you as needed. Right. You know, conscious awareness is our ability to be present here and now, right? And to be able to see things clearly without the distortion of a, a specific filter we're we're trying to uh, make sense of the world through. Um, it's 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 not having these these uh, these blinders in front of us through which we we're only able to see through. Whereas the subconscious and the unconscious, I 
I actually even refer to those two things with the words repression and suppression. Like sub, the subconscious is where you're, you don't have to be paying attention in order to get home when you're driving because there's all that information in your brain that's doing the work on your behalf, right? And you get home and you're like, well, how did that happen? Well, that was your subconscious working in your favor. Whereas the unconscious is the stuff that you really are not able to get to unless you you have a depth psychologist with you, you know? Um, that's the stuff that gets just eradicated, not eradicated, but thrown so deeply into the shadows that you don't have access to them. So I think of the subconscious as what all the things that go into the subconscious are what we suppress. So it's like a fire in the same room that you're in, putting you're putting it out. You're suppressing it. Whereas the unconscious is like the word repression. It's like a fire mm-hmm. in another room you don't That's even good. know about. That's yeah, good. that is good. So you know, maybe it's also t- helpful to look at a few different ways that some Enneagram teachers or authors um, or uh, have approached this idea of the ego and the role that it plays within the Enneagram. Um, I know, for instance, Marilyn Vansel uh, talks about this kind of egoic relationship with our personality as the adapted self, right? Yeah. So we have this kind of adapted state that maybe isn't quite truly authentic. Yeah, I mean, this is where the false self idea comes from, right? Right. Yeah, I mean it's it's semi helpful. It just it I think those the language of it makes it sound um dualistic. So without teasing them out, it's potentially unhelpful if you don't have any understanding of non duality, you know? Yeah. Um I, I li- that's why I do like the language of compensatory solution or self. Like a, the small self with the small the small S. It's the one that's trying to do something on your behalf. It's, but it's kind of just giving you the imitation of the real thing. Sure. Um, sure. Which is why it ends up over time hollowing you out and people have these midlife crises because they're like, who am I? Well, mm. you are, you've been hanging out in the imitation of who you truly are. That's, yeah. that's what's yeah. happening here. I think another image that is helpful, but you know, the, any of these images break down um, eventually, right. but I think... One that's really helpful is this idea of a persona, in which helps us see maybe some of the effects of when our ego maybe looms a little too large or runs the show a little too much. Uh, this idea of the persona, it comes from a Latin word meaning theatrical mask. So it's the mask that we tend to wear when we go out into the world, yeah. uh, which can be really helpful. You know, masks can be protective, uh, they can guard us. They can help us play a role that maybe we need to play or we feel we should play. But at the same time, they also create distance, right? And they also, I think anytime you wear a mask, even if it's like a simple like Halloween costume mask, it limits your vision, right? You can see right. out of it, but not clearly necessarily. You don't have the full range, right? Right. And I think that can be helpful too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love, in light of that, I love what James Hollis says psychologist he's he says that the protections of the past are the prisons yeah. of today oh but, wow yeah but then Mer- you know merton and guys like all these psychologists merton says that we're not meant to resolve all contradictions but to live with them and to rise above them it's expanding the space for us to live for it to live in not killing it right yeah yeah right and if you think about a mask in a lot of ways it's it's both keeping things out but it's also um keeping things in 
I mean, we're yeah. kind of in the middle of the whole coronavirus deal, and it's 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 doing a dual purpose. Um, and depending on how how your ego is expressing itself, um, you could be resisting something good that's coming in, or something bad that's coming in, and vice versa. Yeah, Craig, just. Uh, in line with what you're talking about, how the mask keeps things in as well. Um, there is this, this term in psychology called cognitive bias, where, if I can remember right, it's, it's this systematic uh, patterned error in thinking that affects the decisions and judgments that people make. So we kind of create our own subjective social reality from the perception of the input. Um, Another way, a more simplistic way to say it is that we basically fill in any space with what's familiar and comfortable and edit out anything that doesn't line up with our conditions strategy. So yeah. I, think of, I think of the types as nine different cognitive biases. Um, another way I think it's helpful for us to see maybe how the ego, if it's left unchecked or if it kind of is leading the show uh, too often is that of a caricature. So I don't know if you've ever been you know, to a tourist trap and they have a caricature artist, um, maybe on a boardwalk or something. <laughs> and anyone ever had a caricature done here? No. Way back. Yeah. Way back. Way yes. back. Okay. So first of all, it's really brilliant how these artists can, in just a matter of minutes, capture you, but they don't capture you purely or authentically, right? Mm. If you look at it, uh, a caricature drawing is marked by what I would call simplifications and exaggerations, right? Mm -hmm. So it simplifies certain aspects of who you are, but it also exaggerates other aspects of who you are. And uh, the term caricature actually derives from uh, the Italian language and it means loaded portrait, which mm. I find fascinating that it's loaded with what I would characterize as these simplifications and exaggerations. And I, I think that. the ego, when it doesn't have its proper place in our total sense of self, it, uh, can often lead us to live a life in which we are really a caricatured version of our true selves. That's so good. It's sort of the original meme. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the original meme. The caricature yeah. is the original meme. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it, there's even often it, a thought bubble with it of something, you know, pithy <laughs> and witty and quippy. Right. Yeah, right. No, that makes so much sense, Drew. Because it's almost like I, I wish I could come up with an analogy on the spot for this, but if you don't have all of them, you don't have the one you think you have. Basically, just the whole idea of the enneagram that we we get fixated fixated in one one ninth of our human capacity. Well, so oh. if we have just one, then we don't have any of them. We don't have the whole thing. Mm. I know? see. Mm. Yeah. I see. So we're over-relying on one kind of fraction yes. of the, the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, yes. if I can just go into self-pres mode, uh, the reason most of us get injured when exercising is because there's a poor recruitment pattern. And we have muscle imbalances and, and muscle uh, disconnection. Um, everything from disconnection to the actual... Uh, base of our being, which is our feet and our toes, um, we should be our, be able to articulate each toe just as fingers. Um, yeah. But we've lost so much connection because we literally wear casts on our feet ninety eight percent of the day. Yeah. Um, and and when you when you try to go 
do something extraneous, you're going to hurt yourself because your body has just compensated for so long and lost connection with some crucial parts of your, your body. So we could say then that if we are over-relying on our ego, then we have maybe lost touch with some of those other aspects of who we are that can be really helpful. Rohr says that the true self is unoffendable. Hmm. So any level of reaction is really egoic Mm. because it's an identification with something that I cannot let go of. This is me. You can't offend that. I have to defend this. You can't take that away. That's who I am. Mm. Well, maybe that's a good opportunity for us to shift gears to this idea of essence. Maybe we can just sum up, you know, in conclusion, the goal is not to get rid of your ego. It's rather to put it in its proper and healthy place because the ego is really important for helping us have a sense of esteem and and self-importance. So as as long as we don't let it kind of run amok, (laughs) then uh, we can integrate it with a fuller sense of who we truly are, right? Now let's uh, have a similar conversation about this idea of essence. To me, this is even, you know, in my experience anyway, even more vague. Mm. That I think because of Freud's work and um, and the role of the ego, at least in psychology, we at least have some handles and ability. But with essence, it even seems more vague and just kind of utopian, idealistic, as opposed to having more of a concrete understanding of what essence even is. Mm. Yeah. I feel like this is where um, art does a good job of speaking about these things because it says something without saying something, you know, it gets, it, it, it doesn't get so definitive and clear. And I think that's the realm of what the kinds of things we're going to be talking about in es- in the essence. But yeah. Abram, can you, can you uh, can you give an example of how maybe um, art is speaking to essence, or or vice versa? Mm. Um, the way that art at its finest speaks speaks on behalf of essence, uh, maybe it could be something along the lines of it speaks more universally for one, mm. rather than distinctive and fixed fixed in black and white. But it it also just there's this ideal of, of willfulness and willingness one is more active and one's more passive not in like i'm just letting things happen to me but i'm open and i'm giving consent Hmm. um and and i i think that's kind of the realm of essence really the world of essence is this giving consent and holding the patterned place i'm not really speaking about i guess uh, art does that but i do think art opens you up um, I do think art at its finest, um, not always, but you know, when you're in like a, when you listen to classical music, especially if you're listening to it live and it just is, it's just taking down layers and you're finding yourself getting emotional, you know, like that's the, the thing underneath the thing that, that art is communicating to. It's like, it's mirroring back to you who you truly are. It reminds me of, of creation or nature in that nature, why I think so many people feel at home in nature is because nature isn't doing, it's only doing the thing it was made to do. 
it doesn't have any ability to resist whereas mm. the ego in us does we can resist and only choose one thing we think we should be i think some along those same lines i think in some ways music and nature both are um giving us whispers of the union that we seek mm. um the mm. the oneness that we're hoping for and i'm not i'm not going super hippy dippy here like there is this um yeah the desire for peace the desire f- to be loved and to love like that that's when we talk about oneness that that's kind of at the core what we're going for is this overarching um sense of non-separateness um so i think yeah nature does that art does that and it gives you that that glimpse of something that you have experienced at one point in your life and therefore your your desire to return to it is um kind of co-opted by your ego um trying to get back to it instead of um allowing yourself to exist within it yeah totally yeah and you know i think when we when we think about essence as it relates to our sense of identity i think we can I think it's really easy to get lost and confused in um, uh, this kind of pursuit of self-actualization or something. And maybe a helpful way to look at it would be to just think about the ways in which we use the word essence or essential in other spheres or arenas, right? And so when we talk about the essence of something, whatever it might be, we're really talking about uh, shall we say that which is intrinsic or maybe indispensable about it? Mm. So, Craig, yes. you like to cook, right? I do. You do. And uh, certain meals, right, or certain dishes have essential ingredients, right? Indeed. That you really can't make that dish without these essential things, right? Um, so when we talk about the essence of something or the essence of who we are, what are the things that are intrinsic or indispensable about us? And uh, when we think about ego and personality, have we strayed from those things, right? Or have we mm-hmm. covered them up or maybe marred them or misused them? Mm-hmm. And I have to say in my own life, this has been really challenging as a dominant type three like I remember when I read Helen Palmer's book for the first time and she talks about the shape-shifting qualities of the three, always being able to adapt to whatever is successful or impressive in any one environment. I kind of had this existential crisis while reading it thinking, I don't, well, what, if, what if I don't know who I truly am if I'm only defined by the way in which I adapt to my environment to be successful or impressive, what is the essence of me apart from these settings? Right. And I'm sure I'm not alone, but that's just kind of my own experience as a three wrestling with that. Yeah. I, I really, um, I tried to come up with a definition and I looked at a few, you know, I looked up the word, but um, something I landed on was the inherent unchanging nature of a thing. Yeah. Um, so it's it's um, it's our being. It's who we are without doing anything. It's our in, it's inherent. It's innate. It's our inherent dignity. You could say that you know our Christ image. So identification and doing is ego. 
Whereas flow, being, um, I even just in the moment, I was thinking about this, but go in here, John 3, 8, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit hmm. of essence. So then is this why we hear in kind of Enneagram resources or read when people talk about either the true self or the authentic self, or, you know, some teachers talk, do a lot of work with the soul child. These are strategies, right? To, to be able to uncover, rediscover, live from this idea of essence, right? So I'm currently in the in the midst of writing an album, and uh, I hired a, a songwriting coach. We were talking and um, doing some some live writing, where I just I start playing something, and then I start singing gibberish. But then oftentimes words emerge. Um, wow! And and one of the words that emer- or phrases that emerged was, um, "What you're feeling is not what's inside." And so he said, so he's like, okay, tell me about wow. that. And as, as I unpacked it, he, it's this brilliant analogy. He just said, oh, it's the weather, not the landscape. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, wow. That, and That's the analogy amazing. can, yeah, I can just, the analogy just keeps growing on itself, but it's, it's your essence is the thing that you're standing on. It's, it's the mountains, it's the grass, it's the stream beside you. But sometimes you can't, well, you can never control the weather. You can never control what is happening around you. But the thing that is the inherent, what, what was the definition, Abram? The inherent unchanging nature of a thing. Yeah. You are still standing on the same ground you have always been. The weather just keeps shifting. Yeah. And I just thought that was incredibly profound and that's definitely finding its way into a song on some level. But um, Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think of the term allow. I he- I've heard it from Suzanne Stabile, Richard Rohr. Um it's uh it's it's accepting something so that it can fall away, you know, in our denial or our rejection or looking down upon it. Um, we reinforce it, but in our allowing it, like allowing of the wind, you know, the real thing emerges. Um, like as Helen Palmer says, as soon as you welcome and relax the resistance that is your type, you hanging out in that one ninth place, you tap into the very life force that never went away. The inherent unchanging nature of a thing that's always there. It never goes away, you know, and the, but there's a, there's a difference between and I don't know if we want to tease this out. We could try, but there's a difference between like the undifferentiated um, consciousness of a baby and then the consciousness of a, a, an adult. Mm. There really is a difference there, and I think that's important to, to know because I think a lot of people are trying to say, we need to go back to the baby's essence or the baby's undifferentiated sense of self, oneness, where actually I think an, an adult's, um, wholeness is about holding the ego and the essence, you know, right. that's the difference here. And that's where we're going to bring in where we'll, we'll talk about in different episodes, the law of three, where you've got a, a affirming, uh, an opposing and a reconciling force, you know, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that that's, 
brings up yet again what is such a crucial and central point that this is not an either or proposition here. That mm-hmm. you know, the especially when we use the Enneagram as it relates to ego and essence, it's not that we get to you know uh, kill the ego and only live from essence. You know, I think of uh, Parker Palmer, who's an author I've really valued and appreciated, who I'm told is a three, which is um, maybe that's why he's my patron saint or something. (laughs) Um, But he wrote a book called A Hidden Wholeness, which I think gets at this idea. And and he talks in uh, that book as well as some of other other writings of his uh, about living an undivided life in which um, we live from a place of integration in a place of wholeness, which I think is really what, uh, that's our work as adults. Yeah. Is not to get back to this like baby type purity and innocence. Although there's probably some things that we can reclaim, but that's not all that realistic or practical, right? Um, Getting back to my baby-like state isn't gonna help me pay my bills right now, you know, but- but it, right. living from a place of wholeness and authenticity in which my ego is integrated with the other aspects of who I am uh, is a much better place to be and a much better place to live from, right? Helen Luke, she says, wholeness is born of the acceptance of the conflict of human and divine in the individual psyche. Mm. So, I mean, I, th- I think uh, I was at a, a, a training, a narrative training uh, a couple of days ago and and it just hit me that I think one of the gifts of the Enneagram is that it shows us that, that it's kind of predicated for one on, um, on essence, on the, our inherent goodness that we start that way, but, but also that there's no, there is no separation between the human and the divine and that really you don't get one without the other to know the human, to be fully human is to understand the divine part of us. Um, so there's really no separation between the two. And that's, I think, one of the gifts of the Enneagram is that when you hold both of, both of those capacities within you, the light and the dark, um, unconscious and conscious, and then you, you transcend them, you know, you, you hold them both and you are, you are them both, but you are more than, more than them. I'm just Mm. going now, but. No, that's interesting. I do think what you're, you're speaking on is this ancient concept of, you know, the Imago Dei made in the image, right? right? Mm. That we that humanity reflects something divine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm. we've said a ton of things about ego, about essence, all this knowledge. Um, it's wonderful. Uh, I am curious uh, for all of us, uh, Abram. I would like, well, both of you. I'd like both of you to answer the question. Give me a moment in the past um, where you saw both ego and essence operating? You know, if we're talking type specific here, it's pretty fascinating for me, you know, with the, with the work that I've been trying to do to, to uncover how I'm showing up with the nine patterns. Um, for, so, for example, when, when something extreme happens in front of me, especially with my kids, it's, it's, semi-alarming when like when one of them falls and gets hurt really bad my reaction is not not all the time so i'm not a monster here y'all uh but my reaction is like why 
why did that <laughs> it's honestly it's like some level of of anger because it's disrupting something that should not be happening how did that happen how could that's the first re- re- reaction and that's the you know the 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 ego, I really do think, because it's it's in opposition to what is okay for my type structure to be in harmony and comfortable and at peace. You know, that's what I avoid. You know, if we're going to talk about the ego as a dualistic thing, as a polarity, I am in pursuit of peace and harmony, and I avoid conflict. And so, type specifically, that those are some interesting moments for me, even now, when when something happens to one of my kids and I just get in this before a, before a compassionate, oh my gosh, are, are you okay? It's not always. Hear me again. <laughs> but it's strange because <laughs> it's like an immediate like disruption. Why? Oh no, that can't happen. It, or like yeah. when my wife wants to bring up something, I just want to smooth it over right away. You know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. and, I, and I do think the egoic perspective from the nine is it's an imitation of peace and so it's a smoothing over of something so i can have that oneness even though it's an imitation of oneness so this is not to validate you exploding (laughs) reactively but there is an aspect that you awakened to anger right Mm -hmm. which is not something a nine is always prone to do right Uh, yeah but to actually awaken to it and express it, uh, maybe there is some essence going on in there mixed in with ego. I don't know. Totally. I, I believe that. I mean, anger tells you what you're passionate about. It helps you have right. an opinion and stand up for something. That you care, but, right? It shows that you care about whatever's going on, right? To some Yes, degree. totally, totally. But it's, yeah, I don't have to get into that, yeah. What about you, Drew? Do you have something? Yeah. Well, you know, as a dominant type three, I care very deeply about value and worth. And so in my more ego-driven states, I can be more consumed by achievement to go and manufacture value and worth in order to impress others and feel valuable and worthy. So I really, anytime I I achieve something that's meaningful or important, you know, I'm always in the midst of this tension between my ego and essence, because on the one hand, uh, you know, if I'm honest, I want people to notice it and to value it and appreciate it and therefore value and appreciate me. But at the same time, the fact that I did do something meaningful, (laughs) you know, and significant, is a reflection that I am valuable and worthy, right? So Mm -hmm. it it really does feel like two sides of of the same coin. And and so I think the challenge for me as a three is distinguishing between those so that I'm not saying yes to things just to get the admiration of others solely, right? Mm -hmm. But from a place of essence or authenticity, I still want to achieve and and, uh, accomplish and do good things and uh, but it comes from a place more of uh, that's congruent and integrated with who I am, and yeah. um, not just about the seeking the approval of others, but actually as a natural expression of who I authentically am. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that means then is that um, the things that I want to devote my time and energy to 
need to uh, make sure that they are coming from a place of authenticity <laughs> and, and also uh, for the sake of benefiting others, not just myself. So that's been, yeah. I think, a helpful check for me as I do things like this podcast or um, as you know, uh, the book that I wrote is preparing to be launched into the world. You know, these are pursuits and efforts that um, I could spend the same amount of time and energy on uh, in order to impress and valid get validation from others. Or would I do these things without all that because they are natural expressions of who I am? I would say similarly on on my side of things as as a four. Um, in my music, there's uh, well, I re- released an album a few years ago, and um, one of the things that I did with it uh, was create these events that I called listening experiences. So I'd have people come to a specific place, and I'd have uh, a pair of really nice speakers set up, and I would lead everyone through a breathing exercise, and then give them pieces of paper and pencil and we would then proceed to listen to five of the songs. Hmm. Um, then afterwards, we'd get, uh, we'd just talk about our observations, our feelings, our um, images, pictures, whatever came to their head, whatever happened during each of the songs. Um, and it was a, a uniquely powerful experience for everyone involved, myself included. And um, even in that, there is, as much as I don't like to admit it, the there was a, a part of me that thoroughly enjoyed it because it's like, hey, people are, th- my music is doing something for this person and it's making me, it's assuring myself that I'm doing good work because I don't believe in my, <laughs> when I'm in, when I'm caught in my trance, yeah, uh, I believe most of my stuff is utter garbage. Um, and, but so at the same time, there's like this, this assurance from others that I am, I am worth it. I am valuable. I am all the th- all the things, um, but at the same time, on the essence side of things, it's um, it is what I'm here to do, and it is it is the value that I am bringing to the world. Um, my music does get into some interior places that people normally don't go. Um, yeah, and it's I'm getting to do the thing that I love to do most and that I'm here to do and I'm it's it's coming out of an authentic place so it's it's similar to you but we're, we share we share a corner on the Enneagram so yes we do yes we different. do yeah that's good so I know well I know this was a helpful conversation for me in talking mm-hmm. through these concepts hopefully it was a helpful conversation for our listeners I'm wondering if we could maybe share some of our favorite and most helpful resources that we've encountered on these subjects in case listeners wanted to uh, explore these concepts more deeply. So what do you have? Abram has a library. <laughs> yes. He's a walking encyclopedia <laughs> of these things. Abram, um, what do you got? Yeah. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote down a few things, hopefully that are helpful. There is a book called the nine dimensions of the soul. Um, it's an Enneagram book, not a well-known one, but it's, it speaks specifically to the essence side of the Enneagram. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's also a book called Dissolving the Ego, Realizing the Self, edited by Scott Jeffrey. Mm. 
Um, there's another one called Reclaiming Your Real Self by Rick Johnson. And I, there's there's uh, other authors that get into like the true self and the false self, like Richard Rohr, Thomas Merton, Basil Pennington, Albert Haas. And then there's, I just had a few websites. If you go to enneagramokc.com, winged heart, wing, like flap your wings, wingedheart.com, and the enneagramnewyork.com. Yeah, and we can put links to all these in the show notes so that people don't have to mm-hmm. uh, try to transcribe or dictate. Is it transcribe or dictate? I don't know. You know what I mean? Um, I would add, you know, I mentioned David Benner before. I think his trilogy of, you know, three very short books, I think is really helpful. Uh, the Probably the most well-known of the, of the trilogy is the second book called The Gift of Being Yourself, The Sacred mm-hmm. Call to Self-Discovery. But the first in, um, in uh, that trilogy is called Surrender to Love. And then the third in that trilogy is called Desiring God's Will. And I, I think he comes at this topic from an interesting blend of psychology and spirituality in a way that I, I at least found really helpful. So I'd recommend those as well. One final thought about this whole thing, maybe to connect it, is this quote from Leslie Hirschberger. She lives in Cincinnati. She's an amazing uh, Enneagram teacher. Uh, she says that your Enneagram type is both your opening to love and your obstacle to love. That's good. That sums it up quite well. Yes, That's it great. does. Well, friends, it's been good once again. Yes. Let's do this again, shall we? Let's do we it. We shall. <laughs> Later. Ciao. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Truthwork Media Studios.